0: Mountain. I'm on a roller coaster sailing across the sky, and the only trouble.
1: from Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, maybe espresso. Depends on the calls, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's begin with a prayer. Father God, we uh, always petition you because we need your spirit, we need your love, we need your faith, and we need your strength. Be with our volunteers and uh, all that they do to keep the show going and just help us to be able to uh, speak the things you want us to say. Bless those people who are seeking truth and seeking to understand, to know you, the only true and living God and your son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent, because that's life eternal. We pray that we'll help each other know know you and him. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanna begin by showing you guys a picture. I can't see the screen, Cecil, tell me if it's up. It's up. This picture right here uh, is, you can see me sitting next to a woman there in the middle. The woman is very thin. Uh, Her name is Heidi, and uh, there we go. And uh, all around her, these are all of Heidi's, fr- actually, it's not all. There are several people who didn't want to get in the picture. This was on Sunday afternoon and at campus. Now, what are we all doing there taking a picture? Well, this is uh, what it is. Heidi is suffering from very advanced cancer. And uh, she's a young woman, but uh, it's, it's uh, advanced and she works in a workplace uh, here in Utah, and for years has been there, decades actually. And all those people around her are her friends. And they have watched her struggle through this disease, and they, she has never uh, pushed anything on them. She wears a cross, and they all came to her and said, you know, we want to know how, you're, how you hold up, how you are Heidi, how do you do this? Where do you get your strength? And they all decided they wanted to come and see what Uh, faith she was about and support her in her faith. Now, in that audience, uh, and not in that audience, there were a homosexual couple, there was a lesbian, there were several Latter-day Saints, there was a Christian woman, there were many non-believers, a couple atheists, and uh, the reason I'm pointing this out is because this is what it's all about. You know, she has a network of people that really don't know that much about what she uh, believes. She hasn't uh, been proselytizing them in the workplace and preaching Jesus to everybody so that they uh, just stay away from her. But they have such a respect for her and her strength in the Lord and the light that she shines that they decided to come out on a Sunday afternoon and actually sit through listening to me uh, Preach. That is a huge group, you know, and I, I, there's a shift there. We think it's all about going into the workplace and, and putting Jesus tracks on everybody's desks. Uh, instead, why don't we just try being Jesus to people, being kind to people, being nice, being fair, and uh, let that light shine, unless you're led by the Spirit, of course, but let that light shine. Let those people come to ask you about it and then be interested in that way. So I think it's wonderful uh, that all those people showed up and they wanted to know why, who, Heidi, what's that about? I just wanted to start off with that. You know, I was really excited to teach the next principle on Chomsky tonight, regulate the regulators. That would be part 10, I think. But on Thursday morning, boom, I'm reading, and I was just led to say, oh, this is what the show's going to be. We're going to take a short break from hacking at the branches. Tonight, we're going to call this show 44 verses it's going to be really entertaining because they're really easy verses to understand and they're straight from mark chapter 12 next week we are going to have a man who is has a growing crowd uh following here in utah and he believes he's the reincarnated joseph smith uh i don't know much about him i'm going to meet with him next week before the show but uh, someone who watches heart of the matter contacted me and said hey you got to have him on he's really interesting very uh Uh, Kind. And so when we have these guys pop up, it's always fun to have them. And so we're going to find out what the reincarnated Joseph Smith uh, has to say and what his father. That'll be next week. And then we'll get back to wrapping up Chomsky and then applying it. I haven't read through the Gospel of Mark in a number of years. And it's really funny. I mean, it's been seven or eight years I haven't read through it because I always study Matthew and then I study Luke and then I study John. And because Mark is the smallest and the three are synoptic, I just, I just got in my mind there's not much there, so I'm just not going to study that book. And um, I'm doing a survey through the New Testament in the morning that is taking all the passages that talk about end times and eternal punishment, and I'm compiling a list. That's just a side thing I'm doing right now. But uh, coming to chapter 12 of Mark, I was blown away. I've been blown away by reading this little gospel. One thing that's blowing me away is the fact that this is a different writer. I mean, because I have read so much and taught through Matthew and read so much of Luke and taught through two times in a row John, when I started reading Mark, I was astonished about how different of a writer that he is, even though it's, he's very the uh, information he's giving is very similar to Matthew and Luke. Uh, but coming to chapter 12, I was blown away by how it spoke to me. Let me emphasize how it, it spoke to me. And as I didn't even read it, I didn't have a commentary, and I didn't use the Greek concordance to help me understand things. I was just reading it. And so it may not speak to you the same way. We'll find out. Now, uh, humbly, God has given me a gift. And uh, I haven't been trained for this gift, and it's the gift of being a teacher. And it's a central gift of, uh, to me because I'm always, teach, I'm always trying to teach people things, right? And uh, so teachers are certainly not infallible, make a lot of mistakes. But when it comes to teaching scripture, the best way to be a teacher of scripture is to have the spirit. And as I read over the contents of chapter 12 and ideas were coming to me as I read the contents I started to say, is the Spirit speaking to me these things, or am I thinking, uh, is it just my prejudices and my worldview that's coming out as I read these things? And I firmly believe that when I'm reading, and hopefully subsequently teaching the Word, that the Spirit is leading. If the Spirit's not, what am I doing, even trying? I shouldn't even be giving giving it a go if there's no Spirit involved. So. I want to take the next few minutes together and I want to discuss the chapter 12 of Mark. And let's see if you concur with the things I suggest that are being said. Chapter 12 consists of seven events or circumstances or stories, if you will, as I'm labeling them. Let's work through them together. I'm going to read the verses and I'm going to amplify what they say as we read. What that means is I'm going to insert my own words between words of the scripture to help explain what's happening as we go. So the first event, uh, verses one through 12, you ready? And he, Jesus, began to speak unto them by parables. And he said, a certain man, this man represents God in this parable, planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and dig the place for the wine fat. That's a product of the fruit of the vineyard. He actually built a place to collect the product, right? And built a tower and lent it out to the husbandmen. Those are the Jews. And went into a far country. In this case, that far country would be heaven. This is what the parable is saying. And that it's a picture of God establishing a vineyard that would have products come out of it. Fruits, if you would, from the nation of Israel. You got all that? Verse 2. And at the season, the time when there was a harvest that was to be expected, he sent to the husbandmen, the Jews who were taking care of the vineyard, that he planted a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. This was God's expectation to receive fruit from the vineyard that he planted and gave to the nation of Israel. Uh, And they, some of the nation of Israel, caught him, the servant that was sent by God, and beat him, and sent him away empty, without any fruit to show. And again he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones, and wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully handled. And he sent another, and him they killed. And many others beating some and killing some. This is Jesus' parable. In these examples, we find an increase in the mistreatment of the servants God sends into the vineyard. You know, the first one uh, is beaten up, the next one is wounded in the head by a rock, and then the next ones are killed. You get it? You see an escalation of violence against God's messengers to the nation of Israel. Having therefore one son, verse 6, God's one and only human son from birth. And therefore having one son, Jesus Christ, not just a servant but a son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, they will reverence my son. Okay, did you catch it? That God will last of all, Send his son into the caretakers of this special vineyard. Last of all, no more other, no more servants coming after the son, just the son, no more. And his saying uh, was, God's saying was, they'll reverence my son. They've killed the prophets before, but they'll reverence my son. Verse seven. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance shall be ours. There seems to have been some knowledge on their part of these caretakers on who Jesus was, on who the son was. They said to themselves, Jesus says according to the parable, this is the heir. Let's kill him. And uh, pretty harsh indictment, really, uh, what Jesus is saying here. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. They denied him as their king. They cast him out of the city walls, out of the vineyard, out of the nation of Israel. Still with me? And now Jesus asks at verse 9, What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandman, and will give the vineyard unto others. Now, the parable began with God creating the vineyard for people to care for in order to produce fruit. None was gathered. So after trying to obtain the fruit in a number of different ways through a number of different servants, even sending his own son whom they killed, last of all, Jesus asks and answers saying, what therefore the Lord of the vineyard shall he do? Will he come and destroy the husbandmen and he will give the vineyard unto, ready, others. Did this happen? Of course It happened. The husbandmen of the vineyard were wiped out in 70 AD. Wiped out. That's what was all foretold. Done. No more priesthood, no more temple, no more genealogies. Last of all, his son, that was it. No more prophets. The steward was destroyed and the stewards destroyed because the stewards destroyed God's only son. And look at what it says there. He gave the vineyard unto others. So it was first made for the nation of Israel, this vineyard, to produce fruit. Now he's giving it unto others. Not a nation, not a people group, but those who receive the Son and, going back to the purpose of the vineyard, produce fruit. That is the purpose of the Christian life. Receive the Son, produce fruit. Give the Son the fruits of the vineyard, because it's been given to the Gentile nations now. What kind of fruit? We're going to get to that in a minute. So Jesus wraps this first event up by saying, and have you not read this scripture? He says this to the Jews. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people. Listen, for they knew that he had spoken a parable against them. The Jews themselves who Jesus told this parable to, they knew it was against them. They knew. And they left him and went their way. Okay, next event, verses 13 through 17. And they sent unto him a certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. So up come the the foxy, tricky wordsmiths to Jesus. And when they were come, they said unto him, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the persons of men but teaches the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? These words convey their impression of Jesus right off the bat. They're, they're certainly stroking his ego, but uh, they may be right, they may not be right. I happen to think that they are right. They said he was true and that he cared for no man's opinion. This is describing Jesus. The the Herodians and the Pharisees come to him and say, we know that you're true and you don't care what any man says. You don't care. You, you, You teach truth about God. The way of God in truth, it says. Not the person of men. I personally believe this is a pretty good assessment of Jesus relative to what he came to do and teach. And I think it's a good way for us to be. Not give a rat's rear end about what men say. That's what Christians should be. I mean, we care about loving other people. But when it comes to uh, caring about what they think about our, our person, our reputation, or our this or that, Jesus was a the guy, they addressed him as, we know that you don't care what anyone thinks. That's how they describe him. It's pretty interesting. Anyway, they get to the question, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Verse 15, shall we give or shall we not give? Says, but he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt you me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it, and he said unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marvelled at him, and apparently walked away. From the second event we have some clear understanding not only about the nature of Jesus, but Christians, even from Jesus' own mouth, are supposed to pay what Caesar demands in his kingdom. I hear a lot of Christians, oh, you know, try to escape taxes. This is not our kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. Romans 14 clearly says, Jesus clearly says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Be citizens that comply. That's what he tells us to do. So I'm definitely uh, uh, an anarchist when it comes to many things, but not secular anarchism. You have to pay your taxes in this country. You pay your taxes. That's what Christians should do. Comply. Romans 14, Jesus' words. But render to God the things that are God. And the things that are God's are the things from the heart. Give him the heart. Pay your taxes. Stop your games. Give God your heart. Third event. Then come unto him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If a man's brother die and leaves his wife behind and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren. Can you hear these guys sitting there and concocting this, this thing? Okay, okay. How many brothers should we throw out? Okay, seven. You know, just just concocting how to make the most difficult Situation possible for Jesus' to answer. Now there are seven brethren, and the first took a wife and dying left no seed. The second took her and died, neither left he any seed. And the third likewise, and the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. So they think they have thrown a giant speed curveball uh, to Jesus. There's the setting. The Sadducees did not, as I said, believe in the resurrection. They concocted a situation based on a practice that Moses instituted in Deuteronomy, and it's known as Leverite marriage. And what Leverite marriage is, is when um, it was set in motion with the nation of Israel so that if a, brother, if a man has a wife and he dies, that the inheritance would stay within the family so his brother would take that wife to be his so that that inheritance wouldn't go to some other man outside of the inheritance. And plus, it would carry on the family name. So Leverite marriage among the nation of Israel was set up that way. And the Sadducees are appealing to Leverite marriage to try to trick Jesus. So taking this practice to an extreme, the Sadducees wanted to show what a mess all of these marriages would be if there was a resurrection of the dead. That's their whole point. See, and and, and so in verse 23, having set the stage, they say, Jesus, in the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. Now, don't forget that line. The seven had her to wife. They all were husbands to her. They were all married to her. All right. Now remember, these men did not believe in resurrection, so their question was not based on a belief in marriage after this life. They didn't believe there's a resurrection, so they certainly didn't believe there was marriage after this life. This was a trick to try and catch Jesus, but being the Word made flesh, Jesus knows the Word perfectly, and he clarifies at verse 24. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do you not therefore err, err, Because you know not the scriptures, neither the power of God? Has not your understanding of scripture nor the power of God caused you to make some mistakes here, he asked them? And then he says, verse 25, For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. That's a direct doctrine of afterlife status Of human beings from Jesus' mouth, as the angels in heaven, not married, neither given in marriage. Now, remember, stay with me on this. They were all married, okay? So, Jesus is not saying after they resurrect, there is no marriage uh, ceremonies. That's not what he's saying. The situation was these all married while they were on earth. How, what would the marriages look like after this life? So Jesus is not talking about getting married after this life. He is clearly addressing the question, if people are married here, how do these earthly marriages carry over into the afterlife? See, here's the key. The Pharisees who opposed the Sadducees believed that the future resurrected body continued to have marital function. The Pharisees were not alone in this in the history of uh, uh, Christianity or, or faith because the, uh, some Muslims believe that and the Mormons believe that. That marriage here carries on into the afterlife. Of course, the Pharisees were in error, which Jesus makes plain. But the Sadducees made this one of their objections to a belief in a resurrection. So that really what they were doing is they're trying to get one up on the Pharisees through the mouth of Jesus. And Jesus tells them that when people who have been married here rise from the dead, there will be no marriage in heaven, neither will marriages uh, that they have had be binding. No stopping here. He then clarifies for them the resurrection, right? Now, since since they were opposed to it, Jesus goes on, verse 26, and he says, and, since he's talking to Sadducees, as touching the dead, that they rise, he says. Have you not read in the book of Moses... How in the bush God gave unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Therefore you do greatly err. Now, what is Jesus telling them through referencing these passages in the Old Testament? God is the God of living things, not dead things. If there is no resurrection, then he would be the God of dead things. So what Jesus indirectly is telling them is he's a God of living things. Therefore, the resurrection is. And we know from scripture, resurrection is for all people. Good and bad, everybody on earth is resurrected. I tried tonight. Is resurrected. Now listen to this. This is really important all will be raised to life after death therefore god is the god of all because all will be resurrected he's the god of the living not of the so even people who say there will be souls who are resurrected and they're thrown in hell burning forever and ever god is the god of them you have to understand that he's the god of the living if they're alive and they're burning in hell they god is the god of them because he's the god of the living you see that's why have, one of the reasons i have a problem with eternal punishment because if he's the god of all living and all will be resurrected even those who are resurrected to damnation as scripture talks about he is still their god and if he's still their god he is still merciful and he's still loving and kind i take that passage literally if someone is dead god is not the god of that person that's how it works he is the God of the living. If all shall rise again to new life, then he is the God of all, all right? So there's how I would read that. Event number four, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that Jesus had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is here, O Israel, the Lord, Our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Here Jesus quotes what's called the Great Shema, and it's located in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, which says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord uh, God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. I trust in the Great Shema. I accept it and I take it for what it says without messing around with it. I just take it. And I take it as Jesus presented presented it to this scribe. This is the first commandment. Yahweh, our Elohim, is one Yahweh. Yahweh is God's personal pronoun name. It's like Bill is one Bill. That's what it means. Not the Godhead is one Godhead or the Trinity is one Trinity. It's Yahweh is, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. Stuart, our God is one Stuart. That's what Yahweh is. So he is saying he is one God there in the great Shema. I believe that this was Jesus professing the nature of the one true and living God to the scribe and the first commandment related to him, which is to love him with all your heart. I don't hear Jesus including himself in this description to describe. scribe. He's merely revealing the true living God and the first commandment related to him. That's how I read that. Jesus adds at verse 31, and the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. What was at the heart of the two commandments that Jesus the word made flesh, shared with this more than well-read scribe who knew the scriptures, what was at the heart of all of it? Love. Love. Love God first. Love neighbor second. It's all love. All of it is love. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other than he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now listen to what Jesus says to this scribe after they have agreed. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, the Greek word translated discreetly here is nunakas, and it means that he, his mind was soundly based on facts. That's the best way to... Uh, it's off noose, the Greek word nous, And it means his mind was soundly based on facts. When Jesus saw that about him, he said unto him, thou art not far from the kingdom of God, period. We get nothing else. And it says, and no man after that durst ask him a question. Did you notice something about what Jesus said to that scribe? Whose mind comprehended that the first two great commandments were all about love. Jesus did not tell the man he needed to receive him as Lord and Savior. Have you ever noticed that? He didn't say, okay, now you need to receive me. It's not that that man won't receive Christ. No man comes to the Father but by Christ. We know he will. But Jesus did not say one word to this guy about having faith in him. My point is, to say, and I mean this carefully, even Jesus didn't always preach Jesus. You see, it's not to take away from him. He's the only way. But the Spirit must have led him to realize that this one was going to be okay. He didn't have to worry about it with this one. Jesus said in Matthew nine thirteen, "...for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Do we have an example of that right there? Maybe. Maybe. Because this, I I don't see any outreach for him to understand who Jesus is there. It's just not present. We make a huge deal in modern evangelicalism to get everyone to claim Jesus with their mouths. I mean, it's like, you gotta say it, you gotta say it, you know, and while I believe all mouths will confess him and every knee will bow and we might need to step back a little bit from this just a little bit let the spirit work let that work out naturally instead of this uh cookie cutter formulaic approach to this because even here in scripture i don't see it event number five verses 35 through 37 i'll be quick jesus answered and said While he taught in the temple, how say the scribes that Christ is the Son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, "Sit thou on my right hand till I make enemies till I make till I make thine enemies thy footstool." David therefore called himself himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he the Son? And the and the common people heard him gladly. Now I'm not going to go into this because it takes a solid thirty minutes to explain this. And uh, But I, I, I just want you to know that the Messiah was trying to show that though he came from the line of David, he was still the Lord to David. And it's a long thing, but there's two points I want to point out about those things. First, note that the scripture said the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God, said to my, David's Lord, Jesus, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Okay? So in Scripture, we have a Old Testament Scripture, and this is the most quoted Scripture in the New Testament from the Old Testament, by the way. We have there passages saying, God said to Jesus, sit here until. My right sight, until. In other words, in the Jesus role at the right hand of God, according to this, was for a span of time. It was for a period. It was for an age. And he would sit at the right hand of God until he made, till God made, all of Jesus' enemies his footstool. All right? So the question, has God accomplished this? Has he made all of Jesus' enemies subservient to him? Now, there are many, many believers who say Satan is still in full raging power in this world and he's in control, and he still has the title deed to this earth, and he possesses people, and he takes them to hell and ties them in chains, and Satan is still doing that. I am of the opinion, based on a number of passages, that while Satan still roams and still tempts and still causes problems, just like he did in the Garden of Eden, and he had no control in the Garden of Eden before the fall, he was still able to tempt. He is completely without any power to retain Jesus has broken that. He has had the victory. And Satan is under the footstool of Christ. Jesus' feet are upon him, resting there. You know, so it's been done. Notice that upon sharing this, who Mark says, listen to who Mark says understood what Jesus meant. And the common people heard him gladly. That is such a unique little insight from Mark. And the common people heard him gladly. But the leaders apparently didn't. Same today. Uh, In my opinion, event 6, verses 38 through 40, describes all religious-oriented men and women. But to me, it is especially applicable to the LDS. This is what it's, the LDS leaders. Verse 38, And he said unto them in his doctrine, meaning he said unto those who followed his doctrine, those who were in his teachings, Beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplace, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the uppermost rooms at the feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, these shall receive greater damnation. Jesus gives us a description of the heart of these religious players here. And he says, beware of these guys who, again, love to go in long clothing, love salutations in the marketplace, the chief seats in the synagogues, the upper rooms at the feasts, they devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, they make long prayers. And he says, they're going to receive greater damnation, which is a clear indication that afterlife punishment comes in degrees. Some having a greater damnation, some having a lesser damnation. So I say to you, my friends, the same words of our king. Beware of learned men of the faith who love to go about in long clothing. It's not literal. Long clothes here, robes, illustrates learnedness social status, levels of academia. Uh, Watch out for these because often, not always, often these outward accoutrements, these fashions are indicative of inward pride. Be careful of them as they dress themselves in religious garb. Beware of those same people who love salutations in the marketplace, who love to be greeted in what the Greek word is agora, at the shopping mall, at the city creek. Beloved pastor... Honorable Reverend Bishop, O oh, our beloved Pope, come eat our meaty our meaty feast and chew on our, uh, our yeasty breads and 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 share with us your wisdoms. Uh. <laughs> they love to be seen and heard and adored because they love that superior seat. They love to be entitled to the chief seats. In the synagogue, let me sit above everybody. Let me have the first concert. Let me have the first seat at the concert. You know, and the uppermost rooms at the feasts. Ego and pride, etc. We justify a lot of it today because we think they should be. They deserve it. They're in power. Baloney. Look, Jesus said, "What? The greatest will be your what? Servants. Your servants. The greatest will be your servants. No long robes." No titles, no good seats. And we probably lost this 2,000 years ago uh, as soon as the religion started taking over. But we're going to wrap it up with this. Jesus goes on and says, These devour widows' houses. Uh, We're going to wrap tonight's program up with that one. And for a pretense, make long prayers. Uh, Notice he doesn't, he's not talking against long prayers. Jesus prayed a long time in the Garden of Gethsemane. But for a pretense... For a pretense, make long prayers. That's the difference. All right. Final event of Mark 12. Right after telling those of his doctrine to be aware of these types, uh, he includes that these types devour widows' houses. Jesus happens to be in a place where he can witness a living example of this. In Luke chapter 20, which covers most of what Mark 12 covers, Jesus, is, Luke tells us Jesus was in the temple when he was saying all this. And he, Luke begins the chapter with, he's in the temple, he's saying all this, beware of these guys, beware of these guys. And Luke says, and he looked up. So he's talking and he looks up. And then we read the seventh event of Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 41. And sat over against the treasury And beheld how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. Now, this is yet another point applicable in our day and age. Even those who give much are hailed, even publicly, as more noble. But let's read on. And there came a certain poor widow. Now, remember, Jesus had just maligned these guys for devouring widows' houses. And now it says, and there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him, his disciples and said, verily, I say unto you that this poor widow has cast more in than they that have cast into all they that have cast into the treasury for all they did cast in of their abundance. But she did, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living." Now, as we've seen and said before, many leaders in the faith have over the course of history used this as proof that Jesus supported widows uh, giving their mites uh, to the faith. Is that what's being said here? Not in the least. First of all, Jesus was talking about these long robes, salutation loving, best seat taking religious leaders who he said, devour widows' houses. Then right there in the same breath almost, he looks up and he gives them a living example of it. That's the context of that story. I mean, Jesus did not commend the widow. He said she did this. There's no praise. He didn't say all widows should do as she does. We don't see any of that. He's just pointing it out. He's making an observation that what he had said earlier about about them devouring widows' houses is true. Look hey, he says, look, right? Neither was there a directive for poor widows in the future to do like her. If this was a teaching about giving, Jesus could have simply said, and poor people should give just like the rich people should give. It wasn't a lesson on giving as people will use those passages. he, He Specifically said they devour widows' houses, and then right then right after he says, Look at this widow. She's putting in all of her living in those two mites. It was an example of what not to allow, what not to do, not what to do. Uh, scripture has God throughout the Old Testament constantly caring for widows and the poor and the fatherless and the strangers. And he gets really angry at those who deprive them of what they need to have for their living. Really angry and upset. If anything, this story reveals the abuses of the widows, not how widows should behave. So to wrap this up before we go to the phone, we have Ethan in Kenai, Alaska. Right now, All healthy, mindful people who attend their church ought to go to their pastors and say, pastor, I think you should make an announcement. All who are on a limited fixed income, any widow, anybody who can't make ends meet is exempt from giving to the church and the blessings of God will pour upon them. Every single church should be, every pastor in every church should be making anybody who's on a limited fixed income any widow who can't afford to pay her bills, any widow at all, really, unless they're uh, rich, you know. And there's reason in all this, but, you know, the fatherless, the struggling, they shouldn't be commanded to pay tithing. They shouldn't be commanded to come and give like everybody else. They shouldn't be demanded to come and clean the building because they can't give financially. It's absolute bull. It's contrary to what the scripture says here, you know. So, you go read Mark 12 and see if it struck you in the same way and see how you differ. Email me and we can talk about it. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413 while the operators clear your call. We will go to Ethan in Kenai, Alaska. And, uh experience. and uh, that's kind of where God has put me, to talk about Mormonism. Part of that discussion includes talking about Christianity. We've discovered that you don't just have a discussion about Mormonism because what happens is you bring people out of the Mormon church and then they're left with uh, quite a mess in the Christian church. So I talk about both. I was LDS for 40 years. I've now been a Christian for nearly 20 and I understand both sides and that's where my heart is. That's where God has put us, so that's what I do. All right, let's go to Ethan, line one. Ethan, you're on Harlem Matter. Hey, John. How you doing? Uh, I'm oh, Did you just uh, hurt yourself? No, yeah, I took my. Are you there? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. You got to turn your computer down, oh. Ethan. Is your computer down? Yeah. All right, so what's going on? I'm actually. Well, uh, first of all, I
2: just left A little bit of history. My grandmother started the uh, Mormon Church in uh, 1948. And what uh, uh, me and my wife have left. I owe it to Alex Jones and uh, 17 Minutes of Truth and yourself.
1: Awesome.
2: Uh, my wife, uh, her great, great grandfather was the first Hawaiian to be baptized Oh. <laughs> so we have sons and daughters of the, well, I guess I'm the son of the Mormon Pioneers. Because I, my my family goes all the way back to the beginning.
1: Well, you have a specific. Oh, Do you have a specific? Do you have a specific question, my brother? Can you understand him? I, that... I, I, uh, hey, you know what, no, Ethan? No. I gotta let you go sure. because we're having a tear. Okay. We're having a terrible time communicating. The phone out there in Kenai isn't coming all the way through to Salt yeah. Lake. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, my brother. We have a guy here who's from uh, who hangs around Kenai, Alaska, and they're very similar in their personality. Uh, Mike and and Ethan. Uh, we have Mark, South Carolina, on line two. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter.
3: Hey, how you doing?
1: Good. How you doing?
3: I'm doing great. I appreciate you, uh, your program, and taking the time to to help us out. I'm uh, in dialogue with uh, an LDS family here in town and right in my neighborhood, and we've been having some really, really um, good, informative talks. Um, I my question I've been trying to drive home creation from nothing. Oh. And I'm I'm having trouble get defending that with him. Um, I've tried to point out that in, in order to get to this moment in time right now, there can't be an infinite number of past events that have to take place before right now. And that just doesn't seem to sink in at all. And I wondered if you had any insights on maybe what an LDS argument against creation from nothing might be or what how I could defend it. Um,
1: you know... Uh- Creatio ex nihilo is, uh, is debated even within the Christian community about what Barach means in the Hebrew uh, in Genesis. Uh. It's a tough argument, um, but, but uh, I would, the, what I would say is if you're going to compare the Hebrew view of God and creation to the Greeks that Smith borrowed from the Greeks and he borrowed from uh, the Stoics and he borrowed from the Epicureans, particularly the Epicureans, on uh, matter has always existed. That was a very sound, solid Greek uh, belief. And so uh, Smith really borrowed from uh, Greek philosophy when he came up with that, and he wasn't original. So, you know, I haven't, I'm kind of rusty on all of that, uh, those arguments now, uh, Mark, I'm sorry. But um, we do have a book. If you stay on the line, we'll send one out to you and it does cover creation extensively from the LDS and Christian perspective, and it might help you.
3: That'd be awesome, I appreciate it.
1: All right, my brother, stay on the line, they'll get get your uh, information.
3: Okay, thanks a lot.
1: Okay, thanks for watching. Line two, somebody, let's go to Adnan in uh, Moreno Valley, line three. Adnan, you're on the air.
4: Hey, Sean, Uh, I, uh was uh calling to well first of all to uh tell you how great your timing is in terms of uh this episode i mean there was a question on my mind that i've had for this past week i was actually going to write it to you but uh i mean it, it it's like you you almost answered it with what you were going through and basically um i guess i'll kind of start off the question with the uh parable that that uh jesus gave that you gave as an example uh would it have been uh, possible, uh, do you think, that um, to, uh, to produce the fruit, you know, they gave the vineyard to all, would it be possible to produce the fruit of the vineyard and to give it to the Lord without the need for the Lord to send his son to collect it? Hmm. I I, I think I wonder if you if you kind of know where I'm, I'm going with this. You kind of answered it in a sense. Now I I want to obviously kind of like um put I'd put uh, down that uh, of course Jesus is the way the truth and the life and and no one gets to, of course we I, I believe that you that is kind of okay we got that. But in that parable, um, would it have been possible? Would it, uh, someone who doesn't know Jesus, let's say? Someone who never knew the Son, but still produced the fruit of love. Uh, maybe they laid down their life for for a random stranger just to protect them, just to keep them safe. But they never knew Jesus. They uh, maybe they maybe they even heard about him, but but they didn't like the examples of the people representing him, and they never chose to to even bother look into it. Maybe they had no sources to even know who he was, but they produced that fruit, that love, that that even Jesus said there, greater, there is no greater love than for a, a man to lay down his life for a friend or, or something along those
1: lines. Um, would I, it be possible? I, 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 I'm in the same line with you, Adnan. I think that those who love, who don't know Jesus, are operating by the Spirit of Jesus. And I think they will know Him. And I think that not knowing His name or not accepting His immediate cause, I don't think is, is, uh, is detrimental to them in the eternities. I never have. Love is love. If it's Christian love, someone lays down his life for his friend selflessly. That's the spirit of Christ doing it. They may not know. I mean, they may have had horrible examples of Christians all around them. Why be part of it? But they still have the Christian love. I concur with what you're trying to say. I think.
4: Yeah, no, that's ex- that's exactly what's been on my uh, mind in a sense, and and you 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 basically. Reassured, uh, uh, sort of a, a notion, maybe, maybe spirit-led or, or 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 otherwise that I've been having. Like, what if, what if they have that love that? Let's face it; even in some Christian communities, would would envy to have a love like some people. And and they, I mean, but they didn't know Christ. I, I I do also think that 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 that's not that's that's not the end. They have the spirit of Christ. That makes perfect sense and. And that was, that was kind of, uh, wow, godsend that you, you had this, this show and, and, you, and you answered it even before I could even ask. And Praise I was, God. I just wanted to verify, yeah.
1: Hey, I'm glad we can communicate. <laughs> yeah,
4: same here, Sean. I, I appreciate you, man, um, your show, your, your wisdom. I, I, I'm hoping one day to make it out to Salt Lake and to sit in and just kind of, you know, just, just, you know all that good stuff.
1: <laughs> we look forward to it, Adnan. Thanks so much. Hey, thank you, Sean. You have a good one, man. God bless. You too. God bless you. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. We're going to Patrick quickly, line one, Provo, Utah. Patrick from Provo, what's up? Sean McCraney. Oh, my goodness. I'm on I'm. I'm live?
2: You're on... You're on the air. Oh, my goodness. This is a miracle. I've been
1: wanting to talk to you forever. Um, <laughs> so, let me just
2: tell you something really quick. Um... I am a a Mormon a Latter-day Saint, but I'm leaving the LDS church. And I just want to know if you have any suggestions. This is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Because I feel happy, but I feel guilt. What if it is true? What if it's not true? And all the things that I've studied about Mormonism. Uh, I don't know if you have any insights.
1: I do. You ready? It's hard because...
2: Well, it's just, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No,
1: no, go go, finish the thought.
2: I was going to say, it's just hard because sometimes in Mormonism, I feel like I'm on this hamster wheel, running really fast, trying to repent, and it never stops, and I don't know, like, you go to your bishop, or you, or you say your prayers, and you repent, but I feel like like Spencer W. Kimball talks about, either you do or you don't, there's no trying, <laughs> and which I think is stupid anyways, but... Uh, and I've even told my bishop that, but he just laughs at me like I'm ridiculous. But uh, w- what are your thoughts, anyways? Because I, cause I th- live in Mormon country, practically. Yes, all yes my you do. Upstairs, downstairs, everywhere I look.
1: <coughs> <laughs> hey, Patrick, a couple things. First of all, don't hang up after this. We want to send you some books that might uh, assist you. That's one thing. And, you know, they're not going to replace the the most important book Ever, and of course, you know that's going to be the Bible. So, Patrick, open up the book of John and pray to God to open your eyes and your ears and your heart and just start reading. That's the first thing. Second thing, relax. Just relax. And you don't have to make any brash decisions. You don't have to go choose the bishop and the stake president to a fight. You don't have to convert your mom and dad. (laughs) Just relax. You don't have to run from the Mormon church until the spirit moves you out gently. And then after that, the final bit of advice is be Jesus. Literally, I don't mean give your life on a cross, but be Jesus to everybody you meet. That is the expectation of a Christian. You're not gonna convert them through your wit and knowledge. You don't have it yet of of Christianity and most of us don't anyway, but you will plant seeds of love as you turn the other cheek, as they, if, if you get maligned, if, they, if you're mistreated, you be Jesus to everybody you know, and they will in time see the difference. Those are my three pieces of advice to you, my brother. Well, thank you, Sean. <laughs> you're welcome. I
2: appreciate it. You know I love you. I hope you know that. <laughs> <Nice> I do. <laughs> you're awesome.
1: Love, love you too, brother. All the time. Talk to you later. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. We have one more quick call. Caroline in Richfield, Richmond, Richfield. Caroline.
5: Hey, what you doing, Sean?
1: Oh, I was just talking to Patrick.
5: How's he doing?
1: He's doing pretty good.
5: I think you just, you were so cool about the things that you were telling him. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for all you're doing for us too. I'm down here in Richfield and I wanted you to know how much I appreciate you. Thanks. I was a Mormon for 42 years, and then I accepted Christ. I'm 56 now, and I'm the black sheep of the family, but not of God's family. Amen. And I just wanted to say to Patrick that it's—I always felt uncomfortable, uncomfortably uncomfortable in the Mormon Church because I always felt there was more, but I was uncomfortable trying to find out why, because every time I asked a question, people couldn't answer it, you know?
1: Yeah. Do you have so, any other insights for uh, Patrick?
5: Just calm down and just pray a lot. And like you said, he'll, be, he'll he'll know when it's time. Jesus will move him out. God will move him out when it's time. Amen. And not about everybody else right because God loves us all the same he loves us and he'll he's working in everybody's life that's and right. we're not here to save everybody because we already had a savior right
1: that's right good point Caroline what...
5: are well, you still with me
1: I'm still with you
5: okay I'm sending hugs up there you guys are awesome keep up the great work okay
1: thanks my sister thanks for calling
5: you're welcome have a great evening
1: you too bye-bye
5: <laughs> bye-bye
1: very very chirpy uh, Next week, we are going to have our guest. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but you'll know it after next week, the reincarnation of Joseph Smith. He takes it very seriously, apparently. He also has a reputation about town as not being a nut, but as being a very friendly, level-headed, kind guy. So we're going to have a nice discussion with our guest next week here on Heart of the Matter.
0: I'm on the ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy On the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going This man's awake A storm's arising The dawn's waiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light-filled monkeys start